Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and haints hidden in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobick. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. This month is a longer episode, but definitely well worth it. I interviewed Dr. Ed Karshner, and we talked for well over two hours. The original interview came in at about an hour and 40 minutes, so I've decided to split it up over two months. So you'll get the first part of Dr. Ed Karshner's interview today, and then on September 1st, you'll get the second half. Originally, I wasn't going to do anything for September. If you have followed me on Twitter, you'll see that I started a new job. It's incredibly exhausting. My body is bruised and battered and broken by the end of the day. And it's even worse at the end of the week. So I don't really have time to do uh, interviews or research much anymore. I'm having to catch up on chores on the weekends. So thankfully, this episode ran a little long so I can split it up over two months and you're not missing out on an AFP episode on the 1st of September. So without any further delay, here is the first part of my conversation with Dr. Ed Karshner. Dr. Ed Karshner, welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. Great, thank you. It's, it's a fantastic to be here. So right off the bat, like I, uh, I like to do in the interviews, if you want to give folks who aren't familiar with you just a kind of an overview of, of who you are, what you do, Oh, well, let's see. Um, I, uh, I was born in Ross County, Ohio. So that's my, that's my, my, uh, Appalachian cred. <laughs> I, um, and I grew up on a, grew up in a little hollow called Spud Run. Oh, um, that's but, nice. Yeah. Isn't it though? Yeah. I just, I, I just, um, I just, uh, I was just at, uh, Amesville. I, we did a workshop, a writing workshop in Amesville and I wrote a big, a big, uh, keynote address and about Spud Run. So it was, that was a nice, some nice nostalgia, but, uh, I am I am a professor of English at Robert Morris University that's in Pittsburgh, and uh, I teach um, Appalachian Lit. I teach a course, a PhD course in in folklore, ethnography, and information systems, which is a a strange Frankenstein of a course, but it's a, it's a really fun course. Uh, I I write uh, I write folk horror fiction, and I'm also a columnist, a folklore columnist for Reckon Review, which is an online literary magazine, and so. You can find my work uh, for free there, it's just reckonreview.com. Um, I've written um, some guest columns for Blind Pig and the Acorn. So if you can go to you go to that website, you can just search my name and and uh, those those uh, little columns will come up. Um, I live outside of Cleveland, and um... now I was uh, born and raised in Cleveland, Cleveland area. So I'm I'm very familiar. Uh, and of course, you are a a proud father of a recent Golden Flash, my alma mater. Kent State University. So we have a lot of Ohio ties here as Ohio boys. Yeah, my son James will start. Yeah, he starts Kent State in the fall. So very excited. It's been it's been strange watching him grow up, which seems like just in the last year. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, as soon as you get uh, graduate high school and get accepted into college, there's a huge change. I know my yeah. first weekend, I think it was my first weekend or second weekend, I went and got like three piercings in my face. <laughs> because i'm like i'm 18 and i'm free and i can do whatever i want hopefully he's a little smarter than i am um so your was it undergraduate work or you've had work done work in the past with the navajo nation 
And that was something oh, I wanted to, to touch base on first to, to enter into our overall, our bigger conversation. Yeah, that was, um, that was an, int- it was an interesting accident that ended up taking almost a, a, over a decade, about 12 years that I've worked um, on the Navajo Nation. I had, um, I had just finished, um, I, had, I had gone to China on a Fulbright scholarship. And so, um, so while I was there, I did, I researched uh uh, Tang Dynasty poetry, <laughs> and and I looked at. We were talking earlier about um, uh, the idea, like variants. So I was looking at the way that the stories had come into uh, Xi'an. So that that sort of the end and beginning of the Spice Road. But anyway, but then my son, who we were just talking about, he he was born, and um, the idea of giving up like three months every year to be in China and not you know see my kid or see my son, um, was, uh, I just, I, I didn't feel right doing that. And so, um, so I, I had a, I had this weird moment where everything that I thought that I was going to do kind of fell apart. And so it was this weird existential crisis, but, um, I, my PhD is from Bowling Green State University. And so, uh, so I, I got the alumni magazine and I was thumbing through it. And, uh, one of the, there was a, a guy who took students to the, to, uh, the Navajo nation as part of this, uh, for a month as part of this summer, uh, cultural experience tour. So I had read all the Tony Hillerman books, mm-hmm. you know? And so I thought, well, that's kind of cool. You know, I, so I, um, so I emailed him and I just said, you know, you know, would you need somebody to drive a van? You know, I'm a, I'm a professor, you know, I'm a college professor and blah, blah, blah. I went to Bowling Green. So I did. And, um, and I, I, I wound up in this little community. This is a very interesting set of fun circumstances, but I wound up in a little community called Pine Springs. And I started working with, um, with a, uh, with a guy there who was a really, really interesting, um, I guess I guess a, a Diné philosopher because he he did a lot he did a lot of stuff with healing he was from a very famous uh, Navajo family and um, you know with like silversmiths and medicine people and, and healers oh, wow. and all of this kind of stuff so he and he was just a wealth of information and and we hit it off and became really really good friends and um so I worked with him for uh, for years and then uh, he passed I I think I'm trying to think 2015 I think. And so uh, then after that, I started working with a with a uh, another uh, uh, Dene storyteller who outside of, who lives outside of Gallup, and we're still friends. But um, but that was how I started. It was just it was really just an accident. And mm-hmm. uh, what I was really interested, what my research there was, was I was interested in the and um, obviously their stories and the way that their um, the way that their stories function differently than than how you know, how I conceived of a story functioning. So there was this really, ent- and what I've, what I've come to find out of what I was, so I was, all, I was pretty ignorant when I started. I didn't know a lot about Navajo culture. I didn't know. I it's didn't a good really place know, to start though. Right. Yeah. Just kind of get through. I was just, I went in the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> they threw that's... me in the deep end. And, um, and uh, so I was ignorant about that. And I, and I really wasn't really sure about like what it, what it was that I was doing because I was, you know, as we were sort of talking about before we started recording, you know, uh, when you're in, when you're working on graduate degrees, you're very text centered. Everything is about the text and everything is about something that's written down and something very, very solidly, objectively in front of you. And so what I started, what, what I started to kind of figure out while I was there was not only am I interested in stories and I'm also interested in the way that stories change, because even with, even, you know, if you're in Pine Springs and then you go to uh, Canyon Well, or you go to a different part, they'll have a different version of the store of the same story. Right. 
and um or a, or a different side to that story or or you'll tell them they'll, they'll say you know well that's almost that's almost right but then there's this part too and so there was a lot of that but what i really found out that i was interested in and what was really drawing me and keeping me there was the idea of an oral storytelling tradition and how oral storytelling is is different than the written stuff and and it's uh it's one of those beautiful moments when um, you can when you can disagree with someone and through that disagreement, you actually learn more about what you didn't know about yourself. And so that was so I was working with my friend, Sunny, who's the she's a she's the traditional storyteller. And she would and I would she would tell me a story and I would start to write it down. And then she would say, you know, then we would have this this very you know, humorous bickering argument about whether or not once you write a story down, she would say it's dead. You know, you, you kill that story. That's because interesting. There, yeah. Cause there's this, there's this performative aspect to it. And and she would always say that, you know, like, I'm not sure what story I'll tell until I get in front of an audience, you know, and then I'll try, I'll decide then. And so there's that, so that whole performative aspect of oral storytelling. So she's, so we, so we had this long running disagreement about whether or not, you know, Anglo stories are dead and Danae's stories are alive, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and I, and I disagreed with her because like, because, you know, you don't want to admit that your literary tradition is dead. <laughs> right. right. So, so we had this, this, uh, this ongoing argument about that. And then I started to realize that it's not, it's, it's not that, and this brought me to that idea of variance. It's not that the story is dead. It's just that what, if you, if that's all that you're going to see, if you're not going to engage the story, if you're not going to look for those layers and, and and then also try to explore the variations or consider you know all of the different aspects of the way that that story grows and it can grow on the page and that's when i started to think even the idea of the stuff that i write about stories is that story growing i've sort of stuck mm-hmm. another appendage or or created a, a lineage to that and i'm not the only one who who's ever said that i think derrida talks about that but we don't need to talk oh, about derrida. derrida yeah let's don't talk about <laughs> I think I think I I think I crapped on Derrida and Icy's interview too. But anyway, you did but, and yeah, I, I took a, a modernism postmodernism course. Yeah, and so I, it was like 15 weeks of the professor loved Derrida. Yeah, so it was just like pounded into my head. So I, I'm I'm yeah. familiar enough to know that I don't want to be familiar with it anymore. <laughs> and that's what's so sad is it's like. I think that he was really onto something. I think that if like if I think that if we hadn't had those professors who had this weird love thing for Derrida, yeah, we might have Derrida might have been better. Yeah, know? yeah. Because I, I I do find a lot a lot useful in his work. But anyway, I I, I digress. <laughs> see, we <laughs> said we weren't going to talk, and now we're here. Yeah, now we're see he does that. That's the <laughs> evil of Derrida. <laughs> he haunts us always. We we can get into to hauntology too. Speaking of, because that is something I think that will come up uh, as we yeah. progress. So it is important, I think, that we do mention him here uh, yeah. so we can get it out of the way in the future. Um, so so I, so I once I started to get back into Appalachian studies, I thought, well, you know, Appalachia was, is a, we have an oral storytelling tradition. And I started to really think about how that then manifests itself in, say, like Robert Chase and and, um, and, 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 you know, eventually leading up to when I did the work with, and still I'm doing the work with Leonard Roberts um, collections, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're taking, someone is telling you a story and you're writing it down or you're recording it. And so there's still that, that there's still that element of, um, of, of, of an oral storytelling tradition in our written stuff. And so 
So that's that's kind of the connection I see between like the work that I did, you know, so for 12 years, I did all this stuff on the Navajo Nation, but it, it brought me back in a better position to look at my own culture because I got the, I got a real look at what what an oral storytelling tradition looks like on paper. And so so it became a way then to, to like read back into a text. Mm -hmm. At least with, with my history, my family, the oral storytelling tradition was and I think this is a, could be very similar for a lot of people. It's your grandparents sitting on the porch and telling you about the life of the town when they were kids, mm -hmm. which as a kid to me was incredibly boring. I don't want to hear about this person. I don't know. And their grandchildren and you growing up with them. I mean, I love it now. Mm -hmm. And I wish my grandmother, grandfather were still around to hear those stories. It's amazing how that works. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just glad that I have the appreciation for it, but I am also embarrassed and ashamed that I didn't take 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 it to heart a lot earlier in my life. But then it becomes something bigger, like you were saying, if you go into an entire culture mm -hmm. where everything is based on an oral tradition where ours just isn't anymore. So I can see that how that would translate and how that would be beneficial. But one of the things that you had mentioned that, that I, I want to ask about is you said the way that um, this culture tells stories is different than the way we tell stories. How did you experience that? And what is that like? What do you mean by that? I'm not sure how I don't want to be I don't want to be disrespectful to my Dene friends. So because the man that I work with is past, sometimes it's not polite to say their name once they're sure. gone. So, Absolutely. so I'll just say. So I'll just say, you know, the, the old guy that I worked with, or the man mm -hmm. that I worked with. So I'm not trying to be vague or skirt the issue. I just don't want to. That's perfectly fine. In case well, anybody... that, that's also the in culture, out, in group, out group. Like I, I, I do yes. know <laughs> you are not supposed to tell stories about certain closed cultures mm -hmm. as an outsider because it's disrespectful. It's so if you are not able to tell, that's perfectly fine. Well, that's I'm what just... and you know, right. And that's an interesting idea, too is the idea because this is this is what one of the this is one of the cool things that that um that happened was that they would that you know you would you would be in a particular place and you would hear a story and I was always careful about that well can I and I ended up never publishing any of the stories that I collected I would I would write a I write around them you know mm -hmm. or talk about like something that I extrapolated from the experience but the idea of being able to give someone a story so like to have like an, an elder tell you a story and then say, but it's okay because I gave that story to you. So then it becomes yours. Yes. Right. But, and I always, okay. I found that to be absolutely fascinating because yeah. there were some, there are some stories that, you know, that I know that I'm not sure that I'm supposed to, but I know that there are some that I can, but then there's the stuff that's published, you know, like I'm thinking like my, uh, my mentor, Paul Zolbrod um, collected assorted elements of the longer creation the navajo creation narrative and he's published mm -hmm. that as a great big book the the dene bahane the the people's story and um and so i can you know we could we could talk about that book till the cows come home because that's that's published and and because it's not the sacred story there are parts that are missing or there are things that paul changed which sort of make it then okay to talk about because it's it's not um here's a here's a good story there was a um there's when there was the Chicago World Fair. I can't remember like what year. It was like what the 1900s or something like that. Sure. You know, you know. But there was a, a an old they a couple of Navajo um, 
uh, medicine people went to the Chicago World Fair. So they would, so they were doing um, those sand paintings. They were doing ceremonial sand paintings as part of this, as part of an exhibit at the Chicago uh, World Fair. So one of the times through conversation, uh, somebody said something about them being authentic. These are authentic Navajo sand paintings. And, um, and the, uh, one of the old guys said, well, they're, you know, one of the old Navajo medicine guys said, they're not really authentic. We've left stuff out. And somebody, and the, the person asking said, I got a, I got a personal story about this, too. but the one of the, one of the guys says, uh, well, what, you know, why did you leave stuff out? And the old guy, cause he said, because otherwise this entire state would be pregnant. <laughs> so, so, you know, you sort of like, you, you hobble it, you, uh, you disable it to us, you know, so, so yeah. stories are like that stories, paintings, um, all of these sacred things that, that have all of this incredible power uh, through omission or addition, you can um, uh, you can deactivate them so that you can engage with them and they're not going to be harmful um, mm -hmm. in any way. You know, and that's a and I think and it's that, you know, whether or not you want to talk about that as being folklore or superstition or, or religion or however you want to frame it. I think it's for me um, this and this, this starts to get to your question. It's that seriousness uh, with which that they took storytelling. And um, and I and I. And I thought, and this is this is something that I've only really started to kind of, as like I said, it, all of this stuff takes time to grow, you know, in your mind. But it's that um, coming back to that seriousness and not seeing, uh, like you were saying, that you know, well, these stories are just uh, these stories are just something meant to entertain ignorant people. I'm talking about Appalachian folklore, right. you know. It's like, well, tell a jack tale. We're like, oh, you know, these are just these quaint spook tales that these illiterate, ignorant people tell. And I think that if and I and, and obviously I think that that's wrong and and, I, and it is wrong. I'm not. I don't think that that's up for debate. At least not with me. Right. right. But but I think that as as in academia and as storytellers and I you know and 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 podcasters, researchers, whatever, we go back and we we start to relook at those old stories with that same sense of seriousness that the that the Diné people still apply to their stories. These aren't just stories, right? And they're such powerful stories that sometimes they need to be hobbled a little bit so that you don't get hurt working with them. And and it's just like for me, that was that was a that was a real eye opener was that moment when I was just like, wow, you know, that stories are powerful. Stories mm -hmm. are important and and they should be and they also should be treated with a kind of respect and reverence. And I think and then I think that that gets translated uh, for me as I've translated that into my own work is that sense of seriousness that I will take. So I'm still having fun. You know, I mean, I get to work with Jack Tales, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I get to, I get to work with uh, ghost stories and go sit in the, you know, the Berea archives for two weeks and work with this stuff. And I'm having a blast and it's so much fun. But if you don't approach it with that kind of reverence and that respectfulness, you start to lose all of those subtle layers where the magic. And I mean, I think I mean that almost, I do think I mean that in a literal sense. There, there is there's magic agree. in those stories that transform the way that you start to see the world. And I, yeah, there's a there's a life force in the story. There is a power that because yeah. those it, it's it's not a matter of of whether it actually happened or didn't happen. Mm -hmm. These stories exist as as a a type of life, a type of I don't know how else to put it other than there is life in the story, and that's part of the reason I love storytelling so much because it it evokes an emotion. If we're gonna look at it, let's strip it down. You tell a story, you feel good, you feel sad. You're energized. It puts you to sleep. The story and the storyteller did that. That mm -hmm. magic, that life was was transferred from one to another. And it has caused something to happen inside of 
the teller and the listener and then in hopes that it will continue to go like mm -hmm. you were saying once it hits a book it's dead and i think i i would agree with you and not agreeing with your friend <laughs> that they are then readily accessible for me to pick up mm -hmm. in another like i'm not going to hear stories from i, I have a collection of recipes and uh, folks can't see me do this but my little quotation fingers indian folk legends mm -hmm. um but it has uh, i'm not going to hear stories from micmac i'm not going to hear stories from the narragansett or even the navajo because i don't live in those regions they're not readily accessible but i can find them here and i can still get maybe not the same amount of magic as i would get from a storyteller mm -hmm. in person or face to face but i can i can absorb it in its in in my own way and then as i do on the stories from the cabin episodes tell that story in hopes that other people will find some kind of magic in it and then they tell the story or find other stories and keep going and keep going so i would agree with you 100 that that there's an energy a life force in that and we do need to respect the stories and, and have that kind of rever reverence and seriousness yeah, and I think that, and that's where, you know, like you were saying, that's where, where Sonny and I have this ongoing friendly disagreement because I see that, and it, for me, it's a matter of perspective. I think that, yeah, it's dead if you're just going to read it and then shut the book and, and move on. Yeah. But, you know, but I think that it's if you approach it with that reverence, I think that the text will speak to you. But I, but you say something good there, too, and I, and I this is something that I'm adamant about, is the idea of, of um, you know, oral story or, oral storytelling traditions require... Or, or one of the necessities, I think, is a is a is a sense of community, right? Mm -hmm. Like you were saying that like uh, having that audience immediately present. And I think that you know we've you know obviously in a in a mass media culture we've gotten away from that. But there are, but there are ways like even like what you're doing and what Owen does, right? I mean, creating creating this this online community where like even like with on Twitter like you know. I've, like, you know, bantering back and forth about somebody going to the standing stones, right? Or, you know, there there's there is that community that 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 jump starts that that this that that re reinvigorated sense of what community is in terms of storytelling and communicating and really feeling that energy. And I was like I said, I was uh, I have one of my friends, um, she is an Appalachian writer, actually in North Carolina with uh, with you. She lives outside of Asheville. Her name is Megan Lucas. And um, her her, she writes contemporary fiction, but there is always a kind of um, an interesting folklore thread that runs very, very subtle, but it's very, very much there. Like, so she'll write these sort of, you know, political, crimey pot boilers sort of stories. And she's got a collection. Of, she's got a collection of short work that's coming out uh, in July. That's got a lot. That's that's a, that's got a lot of folklorey tidbits in it. That you know, that if you're if you're paying attention they'll slap you real hard and you're like, Oh my mm -hmm. God, I can't believe that she pulled it. Anyway. So uh, we were me and her and Robert guy, who's another Appalachian writer. We were faculty at the Amesville writers workshop um, this past, actually just a couple of weeks ago, but it, but it was that moment. So, so let's, let's this idea that once it's written down, it's dead. Right. Well, so she has, she was reading one of her stories that's in that collect or no, it's going to come out in a different, it's going to come out in a different collection. But um, so she was reading the story to the audience. So it's written down. It's dead. Right. It doesn't, have, mm -hmm. you know, but but she's reading it. She's performing it. The, the audience is quiet. But when she finished that, the, the story ends with this uh, 
with a really fantastic twist. And so she finished reading and she takes a breath and then the audience goes, <gasps> you know, <laughs> and then, you know, and then, and then she laughed and we all laughed, but, but there's that, but it, it, you, it's that sense you can't, it's, I think it's that having that community, you know, either physically in front of you, which is why things like workshops, I think are important or going, you know, mm -hmm. if you see that, if you see that somebody is, has, a, is having a, a, a book reading at your local bookstore, even if you don't know who they are, go, you yeah. know, right. Because that it's, this is where we sort of push back against this idea um, that we have a, a dead mass media culture, because I don't, we really don't. It's because what keeps that mass media culture and, and mass media narratives alive is the fact that there are storytellers still doing that stuff. And they're in the bookstores with two or three people showing up, right? Yes. They're, they're at your local library. They're doing the workshops. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, that I think that it's that sense of community. And, and, and as we broad more start to be more broadly defined it. So I would even, even someone like, you know, you know, Mark Norman, who is, who I think is, is more academic, right. Than I think that. I don't know um, that he would say that, but no, he, he very much, he very much, Yes, he's research based. Yeah. Right, sure. research. That's yeah. Let's say research based. That's a that's a kinder word because and because he's a stickler and he's a and he is a he is a he is a world class researcher. But what he does with the folklore podcast on its own and then with these lecture series that he does, is he builds a community. And yes. it was and if anything that community got me through the pandemic. <laughs> you know, yes. I went to every folklore lecture. You know, I, I, yeah. I, and and Icy does the same thing with yes. her show. People like Mark Norman, people like Icy and mm -hmm. Joe Hickey Hall for Modern Fairy Sightings create these communities where at the core of it, the stories and the history are kind of what the interest or what bring us all together. And like you were saying, it got me through the pandemic. Here I am having a, a podcast about folklore, which I owe everything. If they're listening, I owe everything to you, Mark Norman and Icy Sedgwick those communities that they establish make you feel so comfortable. Like I can come in here. Even if mm. I just listen to what's being said, I don't necessarily need to contribute. Those stories are also, because those are in a way they are stories, you know, the 15, 20 minutes of icy every week. Right. Now, you know, about the Rowan tree, she's telling stories. Right. And even, and even when you're getting somebody, you know, to get, get back to the idea of like research based versus say like narrative based, I guess. And even that's like a false dichotomy, but right. Even like, um, I can't remember who, I can't remember the guy's name now, but the, uh, one of the folklore podcasts during the, or one of the lectures during the pandemic was about, um, the, uh, the pagan village conspiracy, you know, and, um, and so oh, he was, yeah. oh, and that was like fascinating, but that was like one of those, when he got done, I was like, <gasps> yeah. and I tweeted out later and I was just like, well, that went in a turn, you know, I didn't see coming. And then he <laughs> replied back and he's like, yeah, me too. I was surprised by where that, ended up, you know, and it's like, and that, and that, that kind of moment, you know, that's that, that's that, that when that story's alive and he wasn't telling a story, he was telling a story about stories and stories about the things that make up those stories. And still at the end, there's that turn, there's that surprise. And there's that gasp where you realize that you've just like, you've been, you've been changed. Like the way yeah. that now, the way that I'm going to watch the wicker man, you know, right. or, or is, is, or, or read any of these, you know, there's a, a CW Blackwell. Who's a, um, who's a writer. He's got a great book. I just tweeted about this because somebody had asked about it, but he has a great book called um, the song of the red squire. 
which is sort of a noir folk horror type novella, you know, that book has one of those uh, moments, you know, mm -hmm. and, it, and so, so when I'm reading his book, he's written it one way, but now I'm bringing in that pagan village conspiracy mentality and I'm reading it now through the lens of someone else. And now that story, it, it the story, again, going back to not to, not to keep beating up on poor Sonny, but, but, you know, but, but that's when that, that now that story that's in a book that she would say is dead, it, it's coming alive and it's, and it's growing. It's become something right. else because I'm reading it through the lens of another story, which right. takes us into that whole idea of variant, why variance and folklore is so important. But, but yeah, but I th think that sense of community is so very important um, to get back to what where we had started and what you were saying. I wonder what her definition of death would be when she says think, it's dead. What what is dead? What is death? I can I can tell I can tell you what I think that she means, and I and I to a certain extent I agree with this. I think it's the I think it's literality. I think it's literality and canon, right? It's like sure. so. So the the difference between like say the way that like a Diné person will look at one of their creation stories versus the way that say um, someone who will like like do a literal read of 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 a of another religious text like where it only says it only says what it says and so you know and you know just like I always tell my students this when I teach I teach a course the the very first intro course in um in literary criticism. And I always tell them, it's just like, you know, that idea that we had hammered into us, like in high school, where it's like, this book is about A, you know, a guy in a boat, B, you know, don't do this. Or, and, and the fact, the idea that we can reduce a story to some, to only its most literal and objective, you know, what it says. And I think, uh, not to drop, you know, since we're talking about philosophers, I can never help myself, but Kenneth Burke was one of the great guys who said there's a difference between um, scientific uh, writing, which where it says what it is or isn't, you mm -hmm. know, so this, you know, Moby Dick is a book about a guy and a whale, right? That's a very scientific. And I think Sonny would say sure. that's what that's what kills Moby Dick, the novel, right? But right. then if you start to look at the drama, and you're like, Oh, well, this is about or, you know, or and it's the about communities something. and the relationships right. between characters just one on one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even like, and we do that in academia, but we don't want to talk about it. So somebody will say, you know, so you'll do a reading of a novel, like at an academic conference and somebody will say, oh, well, you must have, you must be a fan of the Berkeley school of literary criticism, you know? And it's just like, like, and it's like, yeah, it's like, but, you know, but the idea that different, that different universities or, or different regions will have a different way of textual interpretation, you know, if you get siloed, I think that things do die. And I, sure. but I think that when you, but I think that, so, so I think that to get back to your question, I think this idea of a, of a, of, of a canon or of, of this is, or, you know, this is the, you know, the, the final director's cut, you know, because mm -hmm. it, and, and that's all that you're ever going to let that be. It, it, it ceases to be able to grow and, or mean something different. And I, and I think that for, for people like us who are, who, this becomes just something natural for us where, where we just kind of nod and, and maybe some of the people listening to this are the same way where we nod and be like, Oh yeah, of course that makes sense. And, you know, I'm going to come uh, that book will mean something different to me, you know, now than it will in 10 years ago, or if yeah. I'm sad or if I'm happy, well, of course. Right. But I don't, but I think that um, a, a lot of people have been coaxed into the idea to the easy idea of literality. And I think that that's what, and I think that once it's written down the idea that, that that's all that, that, all it says are what the words say and you and you lose out on then Brooke second half, that idea of drama, the dramatistic, yeah. you know, where, it, where there's a, where you start to participate with, within what comes out of that piece. 
And that text becomes a place where you and the writer actually interact to a certain degree. And yeah. getting back to my, my friend, Megan, like she'll say, like, you know, she'll run into people who've read her novel and be, and they'll still be mad at her about the way that the novel ended. And, I, and, and so, and, but she, and the way that she sees that though, is like, good, they're still thinking about it. They right. read the novel a year ago, maybe forgot about it, but as soon as they saw me at a bookstore, they're going to tell me how mad they are. Right. And that's, that's gotta be an amazing compliment because you've evoked that kind of response. That means that your, your story, your, your arc, your villain, your hero was good. You, mm -hmm. You've done your job as an author to piss someone off or make them happy, give them confidence right. to the point where yeah, a year later, like, Oh, you're that lady that kept me up all night right. because I couldn't get over this part of your book. That's brilliant. That's really good. It is. And it's like, you know, and that, and so, you know, going back to the idea, it's like, if that, if that story is going to, you know, as they, as the kids say, live rent free in your head, right. right. That story is very, very much alive in that, in that reader. Yeah. Right. And so, and so I do think, it's just a matter of us seeing our own literature differently, which is, which is like, like I said, it's, a, you know, the idea that, well, did you, did, did I waste 12 years? You know, now that I've completely switched, I've, I've, I've gone, I, I took a break from Appalachian to, to step into a different community and look at it from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. I had a professor in graduate school, the, the best scholar in the world on John Donne say that, yes, you are here because you know how to read, but I'm going to teach you how to read. Yes. And one of the best things that I, you pick up on all the nuances of what the author, if they're worth their salt, these old you know, authors that are long dead and fermented are trying to get a, across the point they're trying to get across in poetry in in whatever it was. And I think that is the difference between a story reader, which is what I consider myself and a storyteller. And that storytellers can take a book read the story and then tell you that story and it has that life force that energy in it whereas when we pick up a book and i just read it i mean i don't it makes me feel good but i don't i think it's like a night and day difference and it is that nuance i think you just have to experience it to know mm -hmm. and having someone like owen on to tell a story that is off the top of his head and then me read a story I kind of start to see what what your friend was saying just in that comparison, where mm -hmm. the telling of the story from your head is not the same as reading it, even though we like to think that it is or right. can be. Yeah, and I think, and I, you know, and I, and uh, when I, I did, I interviewed her last summer for Reckon Review because in August we do like special interviews. Actually, I'm interviewing Icy um, for the. For, she'll be in the August uh, interview, but. Um, but she said, you know, and she said, she's like, you know, I was trying to ask her these questions. And Sonny said, you know, I think that we're talking about two different things. You know, there's Danae storytelling and there's Appalachian storytelling and they're different things. And I think that that's kind of where we've fallen. That's how we've settled this argument. Sure. Know? And it's not it's one a, better than the other. It's, it's no, or, it, or worse than or it's just you tell them and we tell them differently and let's all enjoy it. Yeah, and I think that and there becomes like a, and again, I would still, I would still argue that this is that this is similar. As my students sometimes write, this is similar but different. Right. <laughs> you know that the idea that you know, I think that there's a, a lot more. There, there's a lot of pressure on the writer, and and like I say, so let's just talk about Appalachian writing. So and like you know, so you know, there's a lot of pressure on like David Joy or 
or uh, Ron Rash or or Wiley Cash to tell a compelling story, right? Or Crystal mm -hmm. Wilkinson, you know, to really tell that story. But I think that in our culture too, then there's an equal emphasis on the audience, on the reader, to to bring their A game to that text as well. And I think that that's how that's how it works. And I think that you can see that you see that in um, in an oral tradition happen in person. But here it's it's more kind of siloed. I'm not in the room with uh, with you know uh, Crystal Wilkinson when she's writing her novel, right? But and and she's not in the room with me when I'm reading it. But what we right. share is that what we share is that text. And there's and there's a and 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 like you said, there's that there's that emotional connection if we're paying attention that happens in that text. So so yeah, I mean it's Sonny is right. We're talking about two different ways, two different traditions, two different ways of understanding story. One's not better than the other, but I also think that we shortchange ourselves. If we, this gets into that whole idea of like, you know, Orientalism and all that stuff. Where yeah. if, we, if we start to say, oh, you know, well, the Navajo have such a mystical understanding of storytelling. And it's like, well, you know what we do too. Yes. <laughs> you know, we're just yes. not, we're, we're just not, we're just not engaging it in such, in an overt way. You know, yeah. like the like like some like another culture might. Sure. So, should we talk about some of these uh, Appalachian tales that are so captivating? Oh, and sure. We can, yeah, we can, we can talk, talk about, about absolutely the relationship to other tales in in different cultures as well. Because, as listeners will know, I'm obsessed with the tradition of a story, the evolution of a story, not necessarily finding the root of that story. Like this is the first instance of that. Mm -hmm. I don't care, but the path between perhaps where it first pops up and me listening to it or telling it in this moment. So yeah, if we, if you want to, I don't know, Jack tales are a big, uh, you're a big fan of Jack tales. They, they go on either side of the pond. Yeah. So that's definitely a good, uh, a good place to start there. I always get the, I always get the title wrong because I've seen it like 19 different ways and I don't know where my Jack tale book is, but there's the, uh, there's the one that's called a uh, soft doll. And it's yes. um, and that's and I think I, I talked about that in the uh, in the IC uh, interview too because that one that one is is so that one goes into a lot of different things. So yes. you have it, it's the you know the the classic like if you can stay in a haunted house for so long you'll get an award or you'll be rewarded. So you know mm -hmm. like that whole thing is like you know if you could spend stay overnight you know and even like I think Ghost Adventures with uh, Zach Baggins that was like their first episode ever it was like they were going to stay in a haunted hotel and had themselves locked in and that was yeah. the, you know so that fits it. so Soft Doll is that same story where you know Jack comes upon he's 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 broken and he uh he's traveling around and he finds himself at a at an old uh at a at a grist mill and he asks the grist mill owner he said you know do you have a is there any you know do you have any work and the and the grist mill owner says well yeah you know he said i need somebody to run the mill but but there's a problem nobody everybody who works in the grist mill when i go to get to go check on them in the morning they're dead mm -hmm. <laughs> so jack so jack's like you know Jack doesn't have anything to lose at this point. So Jack's like, all right, well, I'll take the job. And so, you know, so Jack runs the gristmill during the day and at night he's, you know, he's cooking his supper and, and all of these cats come in to his, uh, all these black cats come into the gristmill where he's cooking his supper. And the one cat keeps trying to stick her paw uh, in the, in his, in his food. And he keeps, you know, and so he whacks the paw away and says, sop doll. But eventually he, he hacks the cat's foot off. Right. So, Next morning, the guy comes to check on Jack. Jack is still alive. And he was like, oh, you're still alive. And Jack said, yeah, weird thing happened. All these cats came in and blah, blah, blah. And I cut the one cat's foot off. And so they go to check on. Um, so uh, 
the grist mill owner finds out that his wife is in bed and she's sick and she's missing, you know, her hand, mm -hmm. right? So she was a witch and so forth and so on. So you have that jack tale, but that's also very similar to Beowulf, right? In a lot of ways, yes. right? So, you, you know, so it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a mill and a mill owner. It's a, it's the mead hall and the king who need help. There's the removal of the arm. There's the hero who is willing to spend the night in this quote unquote haunted house that kills people. And uh, and there's another oh then there's another one called there's a Scottish story called um, the uh, the Begain of Saint Tristan where it's a, it's a church and and there's this uh, very Grendelish bog monster that keeps coming mm -hmm. and tearing down uh, you know tearing up the church at night and so this tailor decides to so this tailor agrees to spend the night in the um, uh, in the church and and through you know, uh, by staying focused on his on his tailor job and that kind of thing, he's able to undo the, the he gets the monster to stay out till the sun comes up and then uh, then it evaporates. Right. And there's a there's a Chinese version of that. It's the the Pavilion of Peril, where it's the same thing. That's a, a, a good student, name. Yeah. The, the student spends the night in this pavilion, this haunted pavilion and, and tricks the ghosts into staying out too late. I mean, so. So that's a you know so we have this jacktail in in, um, in Appalachia and it's and it's a and but it 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 feeds out into all of these different tropes and um, yes. and I think and 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 it's and and the way that those those stories uh, have a conversation with each other when you kind of lay them all out I think is really interesting. Yeah, because if you look at the elements there, you have the uh, witches familiar and the cats, mm -hmm. uh, and the idea of uh, the witch or the woman transforming into a cat uh i think the part that you left out there was silver the silver dagger right that's right a magic a magic sword slash knife yeah. right so there's some kind of magic implement that the protagonist or hero gets mm -hmm. uh and of course the jacktail if other folks are familiar with uh stupid hans stories or dumb hans or lucky hans mm -hmm. and the same thing that's in in germany and austria and then in Russia, it's Ivan or Ivan. It's the same thing where you have this down on his luck, not exactly the brightest guy, oftentimes the third of three sons, the youngest, who stumbles, you know, someone tells them to go do something and they just stumble through the story making mistakes that end up benefiting. They, they, they win, quote unquote, win the prize at the end, mm -hmm. uh, which I, that's one of my favorite motifs my favorite themes uh in in fo uh, folk tales is that that lucky hans or lucky jack and you get those with like the uh the donkey the picnic table blanket or the the tablecloth and the cudgel mm -hmm. where you get the the jack or the the lucky hans who make poor decisions in purchasing things but they get the magic implement uh magic things to help the family out in the end. And in this case with the sop doll, I don't, I think other than just getting a job and getting rid of a witch, he doesn't get much like it's, there's usually so well, not usually sometimes there's like a fortune or something at the end of the tale. But, uh, there's that's at the end of that story. There's the, the, the chase version it has um where, and, and I talk about this, I talk about this when I teach my class, when we talk about the difference between like a male, a male oriented story versus a female oriented story. And so um, a, a male story is about some kind of, of uh, retri retribution and, and compensation. 
and so Jack does make a lot. Jack gets to stay on as the um, as the uh, like head, like I don't know, the supervisor of that grist mill, mm -hmm. you know. And so he so he makes like a nice fortune for himself until he gets bored and decides to continue traveling. But then the real interesting thing though is that you know the when the grist mill worker or owner finds out that it's his wife. Uh, who was the witch he sets fire to his house with his wife inside of it right and then and then there's the then the chase story ends with it with and then something about like and then the mill owner found a new wife who was better and much prettier right of course so aren't they, they always right so he was so he was always one element that bothered me yeah. <laughs> yeah so you know so so there so there is that so there is that idea of like of compensation that 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 happens that's that's really strange in those like sort of male-centered stories the other, the other part of the something that I find fascinating about the about those stories that I and their variants is the idea of kind of bring it back to pop culture, the idea of like dumb Hans or or and all of that kind of stuff. There's that great scene at the opening of Thor Ragnarok where where uh, where you know they tell Thor, you know, you've made a grave mistake, and Thor says, "I make grave mistakes all the time, but things usually work out." Yeah. You know, I mean, and it's not. And it's not, and and what's funny about that is that it's such like what you what you're saying is that is such a folkloric thing to say, because mm -hmm. you know the idea that you can that as long as you have and that's and so kind of pull all of this together, you have you have Beowulf who makes who makes um who makes a really really dumb boast about I'm going to fight Grendel with my bare hands right, you have Jack who agrees to do something completely foolhardy. And then you have, you know, the the tailor who who is going to who decides that he's going to um, just kind of catch up on some work while he protects the church at night against this monster. Mm -hmm. And 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 the and the pavilion apparel where the Chinese student makes this dumb decision to spend the night there, but he's just going to get caught up on his homework. You have these you, these grave mistakes that work out, but only because they are they are committed to either in the case of the tailor and the student, they're committed to their craft. And in Beowulf and Jack, they're committed to their word, yeah. you know, and and so there's so this there's this idea of if you're if you are if you are committed and you um and you do and you behave properly, that even doing a dumb thing will work itself out. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, so, and so in a way, it is a bit of a morality tale. Yeah. It's yeah. If you are true to your word, good things will happen. Right. They, or, if you are they, diligent. They, Right. Yeah. Things will just work out somehow because you've been you've been uh, you've been diligent. But but what's nice about that, you know, again, there are all those subtle layers to that Jack tale. But the other part of that is that he gets the silver knife by doing a good turn. He's closing the mill down and an old man shows up late and the old guy's like, well, you still grind this for me, even though you're closed. And Jack decides, yeah, sure. You know, I'll mm -hmm. help you out. Just this one. And so to, to and so then he pays Jack with that silver knife. And so there's that idea that, yeah. you know, you never, you know, of, of always doing the right thing, even if it's an inconvenience to you, because that somehow will, will, that's that, I don't know, uh, good karma slash weird kind of stuff. You that never happens. know when you're going to be rewarded. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And should you get a silver dagger that saves your life, <laughs> you do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, right, and then somehow, and that then and that sets things in motion to help you out down the road. But right. but, but yeah, I think that a lot of you know, I think that, and that's the part that's the the another aspect of folklore that that uh, it there the whole idea of like of cautionary tales or uh, David Southwell talks about scare lore. You know, mm -hmm. 
it, it, not just in terms of like scaring you into doing the right thing, but but saying, you know, there's the, there's I don't know what the I don't know what the the positive version of scare lore would be, but like but Sopdal definitely has this 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 message of you know if you do the right thing things will work out, or if you don't do the right things things might go differently. You know things yeah. would have gone differently for Jack if he hadn't because uh, he wouldn't have had the silver dagger right to to cut off the witch paw. Right. So so yeah, there, so always kind of teasing out and understanding that there that with all of these stories there is something in there that is some kind of lesson that you can then you can you can sort of tuck into your possession and use down the road so every story that we hear and every story that we're telling in this podcast becomes one of those sacred daggers we can tuck away for a rainy day right yeah because you know because you can say i saw this you know oh well when you know when this happened i had a i have a friend who i went to i went to um uh, Otterbein for an undergrad and I have a friend now and that's a very liberal artsy school mm-hmm. and um, I have a friend who's an accountant and he and he'll say it's like you have no idea how much like during the day I rely on Shakespeare <laughs> you know to get <laughs> like you know to deal with some sort of inner office drama you know and it's just like see that's a, and that's a story that works yeah. you know if 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 it becomes like a a narrative structure then that you can apply to your own life to get out of a jam you know, there's a going back to the going back to Navajo slash Diné culture when sometimes like when you so you would hear a story and that story has a point. But then a, a, a good a good Navajo st- a storyteller will end with it's up to you. Oh, you that's so brilliant. Like, here's the, here's this story. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's up to you. And the 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 uh, the the uh, the elder that I worked with, he would always, he would always say, you know, you take it or leave it. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was a little bit more, you know, uh, bold. He wasn't quite as polite about it, but, but you know, <laughs> but I think that there's, but I think that there's that idea of like, you know, we look at these stories and they tell us what we should do. They they're not trying to scare us into um, into any kind of compliance. They still want us to have that idea of choice and agency and freedom to choose. But it, but it's clear, like you said, it's like this is this is the should of it, and that gets us into those three. You know, my favorite thing to talk about those three, the three Norns. You know, from Norse mythology. Yep you know, was, is, and should be, right? What's, the, what weird is, are the stories that we carry around with us? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the second one, Verthandi is, that's where we are. And then from that, we start to twist what should be. We we glean like what, what we should do. And then hopefully we try to do that. And that's what, that's what makes that, you know, like you were saying, you know, he, to do the right thing. I need to know what the, I need to know what the right thing is to do first, you know, and yeah. we get that from, and we get that from our stories. And yeah. that's what tells us what we should do. And it's like, it's funny. I, this is not really related, but sort of, because you get those, we, we, we hear our, so this would have been early 2000s when I was, I was teaching religious studies at a community college. And so, um, and I had, and so we were talking about, we were talking about the Cain and Abel story, right? So mm-hmm. there's one, so there's one story. And so I was talking about, so I was doing, I was, what I thought was a brilliant, you know, a brilliant <laughs> you know, analysis of Cain and Abel from where, you know, well, well, why, you know, why doesn't, why doesn't, why doesn't God like Cain's offering? And so we go into the Hebrew and I, I parse all of this stuff out just to show that Cain was just kind of lazy. You know, Abel was very focused on his, on his, uh, on his uh, offering and, and Cain just kind of just threw out whatever he had just to get it over with. And that's why, and God's mm-hmm. like, I don't want that. So I thought that was brilliant. And then I tie that back in with this passing the buck that happens with Adam and Eve and 
where you know eve says the man gave me the fruit and 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 uh and adam or eve says the snake tricked me and then adam's like the woman that you gave me god you know so there's this whole yeah. there's a family tradition of passing the buck with adam yeah. and eve you know but so I went through that whole thing. And I thought it was brilliant. And I said, so the moral of this story is, you know, we need to we need to th be purposeful in our actions and we need to do, you know, do the like what we're talking about, do the right thing, you know, do do what's appropriate for what's. And so one of the students raises his hand. He's like, I'm having a really hard time understanding what the big deal is here. Uh, Kane just need, wanted to get rid of the competition. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like <laughs> well, that's one story that you can. That's a very sure. Wall Street you know, yeah, the Wolf of Wall Street, whatever. You know, it's just like so. The and way he was that, a business finance major, right? You know, so he went on to like you know uh, what do they call what do they call vulture capitalism or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> but, but you know these these stories that these stories that we bring to stories change the story, which takes us all the way back to the the idea that you know, you know, even though I, I even though that's a horrible thing, and and I and I guess I I see that as a negative example of something. The fact of the matter was he brought a story to a story and came, and that story then changed. Yes. You know, and, and not just changed for him. It changes changed for me because now when I tell you that story, I'm expressing this idea. Of, well, now the Adam and Eve story could be about yeah. getting rid of the competition, you know, despite my brilliant analysis. <laughs> All that hard work. <laughs> All that hard work. And it boils down to. Right. You know, and I think that that's the, and so, and again, that's what. So these stories are always growing based on the stories that we bring. Yeah. So some of those stories too. We were talking earlier. Um, we were talking earlier about witches. We we both have a, a love of all yeah. things witchy, witchcraft, cunning folk, and uh, herbal healers and and remedies and whatnot. One of the big things that I, I've said on the show before uh, that really got me into studying folklore and, and Appalachia in particular was my love of cunning folk and fairy doctors over in the UK and the migration of that tradition and those folk practices into the UK, how they evolve or into the United States, specifically in Appalachia and how those folk practices change because we don't have fairies here. We do, but uh, in, in terms of story and a, a folk tradition, I, my, my, where my head was at was Cain and Abel and Lilith and witches. And that was, I just want you to, hop on that train, that mental train with me there. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's where I was coming. I was like, Oh, this is a good segue in my brain and nowhere yeah. else. But the, the idea of, of what is witchcraft in Appalachia? I did do an episode on granny witches and uh, someone who has a, a vested interest in this in research and fascination. If you could talk a little bit about granny witches and the stories, the, the, the stories that you've heard, in, in the folk traditions around those practices. And then we can move into how those stories have, have the diaspora of the stories there. And that's where I'll leave it for this month. As I said at the top of the show, it was a wonderful conversation with Ed. We kind of floated in the same circles. I met him through Icy Sedgwick, as we said in the show, and became quick friends. It's been a pleasure talking to him. And Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Be on the lookout September 1st for the second half of this episode. It, again, was a wonderful conversation, and you definitely don't want to miss that. A little bit of quick housekeeping at the end here, because I know I've kept you for about an hour now, and let's get on with our days, right? Last month, I started a coffee page, or Ko-Fi, whatever you want to call it, the ko-fi.com, and I already have some supporters. I can't thank you guys enough. I, as soon as I got my first little notification that I had a donation, I was bouncing up and down, 
and just tears in my eyes. Just very, very happy, very, very appreciative. So I'd like to thank Joey, Ashley, and Amanda from the Graveyard Coffee Talk podcast. If anyone else would like to join those wonderful people and donate their hard-earned cash to my podcast, the link is ko-fi.com slash appfolklorepod. There'll be a link on my Twitter page. There'll be a link in the show notes. And I really, really do appreciate it. Again, the job is kind of crappy. And whenever I get those little notifications that someone chucked in $3 or what have you, I'm always, it brightens my day. So thank you all very much. And I'll see you on the 15th with an episode of Stories from the Cabin. Until then, y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to rate and review this show on whatever platform you use, I'd be much obliged as it helps spread the word. You can email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com and visit my website shows.acast.com AFP. You can find me at App Folklore Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find me on Mastodon at App Folklore Pod at thefolklore.cafe. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the AFP cover art. You can find his work on Instagram at Inkwell Graphic Design. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>